Hi, good evening. Hello and welcome to this ADI discussion. Our theme for today is the resurgence of crafts and industry. ADI would like to thank Anantaya Jaipur for making this online event possible. Thank you, Anantaya. The discussion will last about 45 minutes, will be followed by Q&A. Let me start by introducing our panelists. Padmashri Laila Tayabji is the founder of Dastakar. Laila, welcome to the show. Neelam Chibbar is the co-founder of Industry Crafts Foundation. Neelam, welcome. Devika Krishnan is a craft space design and business developer. Welcome, Devika. Dr. Tulika Gupta is the director of the Indian Institute of Crafts and Design. And Christine Rai is the founder of Indian Inc. Now, to start with, let me invite Darpana Atele, member of the National Executive Committee of ADI, to say hello. Darpana, over to you. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another session of the Surgeon Series, which is organized by ADI. Craft and design have always been interlinked in uh, so many ways. And ADI has always been in the forefront in uh, promoting these good practices, whether it's uh, through workshops, conferences, or webinars. So it's very, I'm really happy to see um, friends and colleagues in, uh, who, are the, who are role models in uh, the craft sector. And uh, it's a great pleasure to have all of you here today. Um, a quick announcement. ADI has initiated the National Design Survey. It's to help understand how businesses and design firms have been affected by COVID-19. So please go to adi.org.in and fill the survey. It'll help all of us. Over to you, Suresh. Thank you. Thank you, Zarpana. Leila, first question to you. Give us an overview. How has the craft sector been doing in the last 10 years, well before COVID? So there's sort of two parallel paths. One is positive and one is negative. So let's get the negative one over first because that's a much bigger scenario. Uh, this is not the first time that craftspeople have been in deep crisis in the last 10 years. They had a massive blow from demonetization, which almost knocked the whole sector completely out of sync for many months. They staggered back only, I think, 18 months later to be slapped with GST which in itself was not a bad thing, but was so wrongly implemented and which didn't take into consideration at all the way that craftspeople work, that small art, uh, craft entrepreneurships work. And so that was really terrible. And then, of course, we had the lockdown in Kashmir for five months, which was really a kind of mini thing of what is going on in a macro sense all over India today where people, people were simply not able to work, they didn't have finance, they didn't have buyers, they didn't have bazaars and markets. And now we have this, which also has no visible end in sight, because even if the lockout is relaxed, it does mean it, it is going to take a very long time for people to stagger back and the markets are going to be very different. Now, I did say that there was a parallel positive trend in the last 10 years which is that crafts all over the world have suddenly found a market again and an appreciation after a long time of the international market being dominated by brands, global brands, and by uh, handmade being considered a rather sort of primitive, rather niche kind of activity. I think all over the world, particularly in the West, there is a recognition that it's actually a very good thing. And it resonates with all the kind of concerns we have about the environment, about uh, consumerism, about all these kinds of things. But unfortunately, these two parts don't really meet. 
And if people, uh, not just the public and the consumers and the media, but the government itself, realize that actually India has a gold mine sitting here of these millions of craftspeople who could take center stage in this new global marketplace, it would be wonderful. But it needs a lot of investment, not just of finance, but also R&D, of design, of product development, of finding different types of marketing platforms. So we are at this scenario today. Of course, the immediate problem is that there are no markets and there's no money and there's no sense of direction. But uh, it is also an opportunity, I suppose, to rethink. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I'm not wholly pessimistic, but nothing is going to happen unless we really think about all this, the craft sector, in a very new way. All right. That's a good uh, point to bring Neelam into the discussion. Neelam, your company uses the word creative manufacturing instead of craft. Why do you use that term? Yeah. Uh, so purely because there is so much of width and depth in this sector. It is a phenomenally wide spectrum. And it cannot be encompassed by one, one term. And it was very clear to me that for me, for me, and each person interprets this sector in their own way. It's phenomenal to see the uprising. I mean, look at the amount of attendance you have for this session. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look at. So well, there's a huge inner attachment that almost every Indian has to this sector. That is undeniable. Okay. So in, in, this, in this multitude, diversity of everything, each one of us has to work where we feel the maximum for. Yeah. Because like Lela has also shared there is very little support you get from the larger ecosystem. So you've got to be driven by your personal passion. So I started my career working with artisans in Bastar, very poor Dhokra artisans. And one very wise NID person told me, choose a craft that you can work in with your own hands. So I worked with them with my own hands. And I lived with them. And I saw, I saw that dirt poverty but enormous richness. Lost wax metal casting is one of the world's most complex forms of casting and the most ancient. It's, it's like a science, but passed down culturally. So it's got every possible angle to it. I'm not going to get into it. What I learned from those two, three years was that primarily, primarily crafts was a form of livelihood. So I've stuck to that. Yeah? So after that, next 30 years, I've said to me, it's about livelihoods. Okay. It's about income generation. Everything else comes secondary. I have to put my passions aside of the whole cultural context, of the whole every, 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 everything context, because all that is very valid. It's all very valid, but I am going to focus on crafts as livelihoods. And therefore, we call it creative manufacturing. All right. We believe that unless, uh, and also for me, it was livelihoods of the masses. It was not about livelihoods, about a few master artisans. Because to me, it was livelihoods and inclusive growth. That how do these people sitting in villages, I mean, the numbers are out there. We were the world's second largest economy pre-industrial revolution on the backs of these people. This was the factory of the world, mm -hmm. right? We all know that, right? So how are we going to come up with a solution for the many, right? So for me, it had to become creative manufacturing. It had to become making them into SMEs. 
but keeping just two tenets of the original one was ownership crafts was always an owned business craftsmen owned it they were never employees so we build cooperative we build producer collectives so we can have 2000 women in a collective we can have 500 women in a collective so that's the path we took and we taken the path of handmade but slightly more you could call it commodity manufacturing that's fine got it you know one of the things gandhi said was mass production means production by the masses not production just for the masses on that note devika you work with crafts communities in kashmir and rajasthan and various parts of india give us a sense of how the lockdown has affected them i know it's how it's affected all of us privileged people sitting in urban suburbs you know finding it hard to get the chicken liver patty and all that how is it really affecting the people in the crafts communities uh so at first when when it happened there was panic i think for the first week all the phone calls all the chats all the videos were about what are we going to do where is it going to end are we going to die i mean there was absolute panic one about the virus and two about what is going to happen about our future and i think it's also because systems were in in place you know it was like suddenly the world just vanished beneath your feet but um then the state government started to pull in you know um uh, agencies started to pull in um we started to restructure what we were doing so i can actually take you through maybe three examples from of three different geographies so if we look at yamegnur where i'm working now with weavers these are coarse count weavers who do 60s and 80s count cotton largely 60s count they make sheets and lungis and um, towels and that sort of stuff there are 3700 weaver families in yamegnur and there are close to 10000 looms and my task is actually um i would take uh, neelam's term of livelihood and stretch it a little further and say crafts is a way of life so you farm and when you're not farming you craft so it's it's living if i don't craft i don't live um so in yamegnur what we did was we had just commenced on the training we were we were actually the weavers themselves said they wanted to be upskilled they wanted to know the science behind their looms they wanted to know the science behind cotton which is grown there um so we had we had worked this entire six month curriculum up and uh, we were to commence the whole thing on the 26th of uh, march a day after ugadi which is our new year mm-hmm. and well <laughs> guess what happens <laughs> so it took us uh, for two or three days to sort things out and uh, we quickly converted our um, training into um, lesson plans and we actually created texts so now we have chapters on natural fiber on types of looms on types of weaves on types of yarns on what a dobby is how do you set your own dobby how do you repair things what do you... so all of this was done in english and thankfully the weavers children go to colleges so they mm-hmm. translated all of that into telugu and we have these little textbooks and it's great because we're getting feedback from them mm-hmm. um and what we're also doing is just making plain for our cotton fabric so we are ensuring there's bare minimum engagement going on mm-hmm. that we have not shut our looms down but mm-hmm. we are not making fancy sarees and stuff like that in kashmir if i go to uh, my second geography nothing's changed there since august it's been in lockdown since then mm-hmm. in fact everyone's happy out there because at least now there's internet 
mm-hmm. and their cell phones, even if it's four, not 4G, it's just 2G. Uh, in Rantambo, 80% of our turnover depends on local sales from tourists. Mm-hmm. So we're yeah. in a fix now. We are in a fix now. We don't know. So the women there are telling me if there is any hope in the horizon, if there is any promise that they can work towards, they do have to be the right. three different scenarios. Uh, we have a full house, over 500 participants. It's time to ask our audience a question. Poll question number one. We have uh, questions that we're going to poll the audience to get a sense of the house. The first question, the question is, when was the last time you bought a piece of Indian craft? You have four options. Very recently, a week before the lockdown started, a few months, a few years, so far back that you can't remember. There you go. Uh, so re- not too bad. It's been a few months, 52%. And a, a week before the lockdown started is 35%. And a very small number say it's been a few years or can't remember. So we have a very uh, craft-friendly audience here today. We're all engaged in the buying of craft. Tulika, in your view, what has been the most successful designer-craftsperson collaboration that you have seen, say, in the last decade? Thank you, Suresh. It's very difficult to say which is the most successful. Uh, now, I think most of the Indian designers are working with craftspeople. There's hardly any designer that does not engage craftspeople in any which way. So. Uh, I think it's it's uh, commendable that we have a lot of websites now uh, which have come up and uh, specifically uh, I would like to give examples of uh, like iTokri. They are directly, uh, you know, they, there's no designer in between. They directly source from uh, the craftspeople and uh, it's, it's there for people to buy. Mm-hmm. And when they send it home, it comes uh, very beautifully, uh, you know, wrapped in a very handcrafted package. Uh, with a little note that is given to you. Um, so apart from the bazaars that happen regularly, which is very important in uh, uh, situations like these, I think it's very, very important that more and more visibility, transparency uh, comes to the fore, where we can use technology completely. Okay. And uh, uh, like I said, naming one designer is very difficult. All the designers are working with craftspeople. And all of them are uh, wonderful collaborations. It has to also result in sales. That is where, uh, you know, you could have wonderful products, but then if you do not advertise enough or if you do not sell enough, that is also an issue because ultimately it's about livelihoods, as uh, Neelamji said or uh, Lelaji said and uh, also Devika mentioned. It's all about livelihoods and that is what here at IICD also, uh, you know, we continuously strive for that, that whoever comes here for education, whether it's a craftsperson or, or anybody else, Mm-hmm. They should be able to sell their products. They should be able to create and sell their products. And I think that is really very important because I've seen being, I've not worked as a business person, but I've worked as a faculty and always in education for a very long time. And here what I see is uh, a lot of the times designers become very romantic and, uh, you know, they have a lot of wonderful view about uh, things that they can make. And then it all falls flat when they are not able to do basic things like costing and selling it properly. Mm-hmm. So all the young designers I'm talking about whom I've seen grow over the years. And so uh, that I think is also very important uh, for designers to keep that in mind okay. and to discover new markets. And I think uh, technology really has really helped, helped it. And going further, even including things where we can trace where everything has come from, Mm-hmm. Uh, will be very important because we see a lot of fake products in the market and mm-hmm. you know I'm sorry to say but they have designer labels but the products are fake sometimes uh, it's not genuine uh, craft work at all 
I've seen the thing that really gets my goat is when I see printed ikat. I want to yes. slap the designer when they print yes. patterns onto fabric. Yes. That's my personal. It's, it's really sad. Right. It's really sad. So I think we can use technology uh, right now. Uh, you know, there's this new technology, blockchain, that is coming up. I think that we can really use wonderfully for these kind of things. All right. So. Speaking of new markets and costing, Christine, you've been buying Indian crafts for a long time on behalf of foreign buyers, on behalf of companies outside of India, because Indian crafts have a market outside India as well. Which forms of Indian craft are top of mind when it comes to foreign retailers or foreign buyers, for instance? Thank you, Suresh. Um, it's a great honor, actually, and privilege to be here. Um, I just wanted to add that I am also uh, representing the entire buying agents fraternity in that um, I, I represent the Buying Agents Association, which is a very new body. We just got formed about four years ago, but um, surprisingly, uh, COVID-19, you know, it's in times of crisis that you've come together more. So we're on, uh, we're on talks uh, both with ourselves, our members, as well as with the industry at the moment and getting a lot of uh, great information. So I'm, I'm, I'm superbly honored to be here. I'm in such good company. I mean, I know Lila, we're Delhi, you know, we're Delhi party girls. So um, it's, it's fun. <laughs> I have met them in a strictly, in a strictly work uh, context. I don't know Divika at all, but I'd love to get to know her. And uh, I have actually got Tulika on my list of people to get to know because I've heard about her institute outside Jaipur and it sounds wonderful. So to get to the question, um, yes, Indian craft, it's, you know, it's, it's widely known, it's widely appreciated. I would say the top forms that are, are, you know, that international buyers really understand are block printing. And I would call screen printing a craft as well. I know you know, it can, you, you probably want to slap me because we're the people that say, well, if you can't afford real ikat and you want that look, you can screen print it. But don't call it ikat. It's a pretty, it's a pretty print on the screen. And so um, I, I deserve to get slapped. But our job is to actually be that person in the middle that says, you want that look? You can still make it in India. Don't go and make it in China. But let's do a screen print. And, 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 and you know, so that, that is unfortunately one of the things we do. Um, I, Cardi and handloom weaving, I think uh, weaves have a huge role to play, uh, whether it's scarves, whether it's in apparel, whether it's in um, just curtains or uh, other types of home furnishings. Embroidery, we still see a lot of hand embroidery on, uh, in, in fashion again, uh, apparel, uh, a, a huge amount, and on fashion accessories. Um, probably a little too expensive hand embroidery to put onto cushion covers and things that tends to be machine embroidery now. Uh, wood carving is one of our, I mean, I would say one of India's hugest, and it's all hand carved still. Um, and metal, you know, metal crafts uh, in, the, in the hard lines category. Sheet metal, you know, with all the textures, the hand hammering, all the work that does is done on them, as well as sand casting and, and forging. So that's, that, that, those, are, those are in the top 10. And probably in the textile side, counter work is still going strong. I think the, the, uh, the Western consumer, the foreign consumer, I shouldn't say West because we have East of here, Japan mm -hmm. and uh, Australia. Um, on the bottom side, you asked that question, I would say probably the Kashmiri embroidery, things like numdas are not really understood, although I, I love them and I, I actually made a customer buy some numdas once. And, mm -hmm. and it was quite interesting. They changed the color. So we did dark navy numdas with sort of a, a lighter blue and they were, they were quite pretty, but I don't think they sold very well. The customer didn't quite get it. Um, um, Bidri work, which is one of my fav personal favorites, is, is a, is a non-starter. It's too expensive. It's just too expensive. But, um, and there was a company in, in Bangalore several years ago that did the most beautiful, I mean, the, the creative design came from Bangalore, uh, a guy called, uh, Vicky Sardesai, and he did a whole Bidri collection with totally modern, you know, beautiful, I think it was a cherry blossom design or something. And, 
and it was absolutely exquisite. Um, uh, chicken curry and tilla work, um, totally, you know, too, too expensive almost. Chicken curry is too beautiful, but when we convert it to a Western uh, price point, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really, um, it's, it, people like it, but it doesn't really hold its own. So I think, you know, working with the foreign client, um, the price relationship is really, really important. Um, you know, you, you've got to know your market. Um, you've got to know, you know, what the price points are. And I think, but you can still buy crafts. I mean, there's still, you know, I, I know for, for many of you purists, Muradabad is not necessarily handicraft, but that's where we see the mm. handcraft almost moving in a, in a, in a, in a more, um, industrial way. But I've seen, I mean, we had a huge program, if I can just share briefly, uh, of a, of a hand hammered, um, copper, copper tankard, um, you know, thousands and thousands of pieces. And in, we got the program in India and production was going a bit slow. And the customer said, well, we can make it, get it made in China, but they will machine hammer it. And I can't tell you how horrible it looked like a golf ball, you know, with really little sort of mechanized things. And, and we managed to save the order. We still shipped it from India and, um, we, it was all hand hammered. So I felt, uh, I felt very, uh, very proud, uh, very proud of that. You know, I think, and I, I think what's happening now though is that the, the foreign customer, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing quotes and I'm seeing, uh, people really wanting to look more at, um, you know, at, at handcraft. Um, there's the, you know, the, the markets that's still alive and is probably going to grow many fold over the next few months is e-commerce and what better space to tell the handcraft story than on a website, you know, because it's not in a store. My customers say it's too hard. We can't do the signage. We can't do this. We have a little tag on the product to tell the story. So I see e-commerce being a great uh, vehicle for us to tell the craft story. And, um, you know, I think, I think it will go hand in hand in this new world. Um, you know, and, and, and people, you know, post COVID-19, I'm already seeing it. We're seeing people actively wanting to move away from China, mass production. Um, you know, during, due to the tariffs, as much business that could go to Vietnam has already gone. Vietnam is now full. They don't have capacity for anything. So, um, India is going to emerge. And I think that our, our craft heritage can continue. I think our craft skills can continue. Um, and I think in home decor as well, it's already happening. There's a lot of talk about people saying, you know, how people are wanting to eat together more. They're cooking together. Um, you know, India does beautiful table, you know, tableware, uh, not so much in ceramics, although that is, uh, that is starting to grow, but, you know, just wooden, wooden chopping boards, wooden blocks to serve your cheese, including the, the cutlery. And I wanted to just, um, end my, end my remarks with a, with a quote from quite a famous, um, a lady. She's in a sort of trend, trend forecaster called Lee Edelcourt. I don't know how many of you are familiar with her. And uh, she just recently said, we will start up again with new rules and regulations, allowing countries to get back to their know-how and specific qualities, introducing cottage industries that would flourish and grow into an arts and crafts century where manual labor is cherished above everything else. So I think there's hope. I mean, I'm just, you know, I really believe there is great hope. Bravo. All right, time for a second audience poll. And right, in your view, are Indian designers engaging enough with the craft sector? You have four options. Yes, plenty of great examples. Yes, but they could be doing a lot more. Option three, no, not nearly enough. And option four, you just don't know. You don't know, can't say. All right, the overwhelming response is that yes, but they could be doing a lot more. And 26%, a quarter of the audience says no, not nearly enough. Neelam, apart from working with craftspeople and improving the quality of craft and manufacturing, you're also attempting to create a new business model, what you call a kind of form of capitalism, more, more inclusive form of capitalism. Tell us about that. 
creation of a new business model? Well, it's very clear that uh, what Devika said that farm and off farm, right? So if you look at why the government has never taken this sector seriously, I finally analyzed it, is because we never linked it enough to farm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lobby for farmers. Mm-hmm. There, uh, I mean, you look at USAID, you look at Gates Foundation, you look at all the large donor agencies. They have a section for farmer, agri, but there is nothing for artisanal product. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to go on how we tell the story and how we, we so, so the first thing, not the first thing, it's taken us 26 years. So we first started calling it creative manufacturing and now we call it off farm. So farm, okay. off farm. So Nabad, for example, has been told that they need to support the formation of 2000 non-farm producer companies. Yeah. But I, I don't like the word non-farm because see, the Indian government strategy on farm and on inclusive growth in farm is producer companies. So we have 7,000 agri-producer companies. We have small farmers agri-consortium which supports the building of farm producer companies. Of farm producer companies, silence, nothing. So Nabad said, okay, we will support 2,000 uh, non-farm producer companies. I don't know how much headway they've made. But basically, look at Amul. Amul is value addition. The milkman owns the company that makes the cheese and mm-hmm. the gourmet chocolates and the gourmet yogurt. Mm-hmm. The milkman owns it, right? Mm-hmm. So we got to do the same thing for inclusive growth. Look, read Vergi's Korean, everyone. Vergi's Korean has got this wonderful quotation that says that with professional management, we can transform the lives of our farmers. So I say with professional management, we can transform the lives of our artisanal producers. Right? Okay. Just do a quick matchup between farm or farm, farm or farm. And you, you will come up with a plethora of solutions, the government may even listen to you a little more seriously. But I think um, essentially it's all about a kinder economy is that artisans get value only if they make the end product. Okay, I'll just make it less abstract. Let's take cotton. Why are cotton farmers committing suicide? Why? So if the cotton farmer could own the brand that made the cotton shirt, Mm -hmm. it's as simple as that. So Amul is owned by 3 million milkmen. So we've got to look at this at scale. And the only thing I've learned from the whole Vergis Kurian experience is that whatever he did 60 years ago happened because of certain circumstances. I believe what will happen in our sector, I I can see it happening already. It's thanks to this thing called COVID. So I don't think we can do what he did and the way he did it 60 years ago. I think today it will be about networking, it will be about collaboration, it will be about technology. Today we have something called technology, which can super assist collaborative thought and network building. We will not be able to do it the way it was done then, but there are new ways to do it. And there is a new way to build a kinder, inclusive economy that's owned by the base producers. Cotton farmers should own the brands. And the weavers must own the brands. The spinners must own the brands. Exactly what uh, Gandhi said, right? Today, we have the word brand. And how are you going to make these inclusive supply chains? You can make them across materials. You don't have to worry. I mean, for years, people told me it's impossible to do an Amul in this sector because Amul is just one raw material. It's a commodity product. Mm -hmm. So what? So today, we are talking about a platform for inclusive entrepreneurship. Five. It's a societal platform. Societal platform is a thought which has emerged from Ekstep and Nilikini philanthropies. That today we need to build platforms 
that are owned by society. Mm-hmm. Ubers and Olas that are owned by private investors. So there are new ways of doing these things. These are all collaborative platforms. And I'm deeply, deeply, deeply impressed by this huge force of energy that's entering the sector where people are keen to collaborate now caused by this pressure. Yeah, And you, you can do sale of uh, low-end products, sale of high-end products, everything on these platforms. All right. Devika, give us a sense of uh, what a design intervention into a craft sector, commitment to Kashmir being an example, what does it do for the community? We know what it does for the design of the craft itself because that's visible to us. Tell us what it does to families, what it does to children, what it does to people who live in the community. So you want uh, for C2K specifically or no. uh, in C2K like community, using okay. C2K as an okay. example. So, so, okay. um, so any intervention that happens where we are talking about, like uh, Neelam said, enhancing livelihoods, enhancing incomes. If, if, if I take the example of, say, Ranthambo, Dastaka Ranthambo is a hugely successful uh, enterprise which is primarily made for generating livelihoods to people who were affected by the formation of the Tiger Reserve and the people who were displaced and uh, from inside the core zone to outside. And when it became no man's land, like nobody could enter the forest, people who lived in the villages outside couldn't enter either. So crafts was just a means to an end. The larger purpose was to actually give these people something to do because they'd lost their old way of life. So, so it's been hugely transformational. Uh, we are, I'm seeing now the third uh, generation. So for the first generation uh, who Lila started working with in 89, um, they were not literate. They were very young mothers who were married at a very young age and had their children before they were 20. They had five or six children. Their daughters then got till eighth grade. And now the granddaughters are working elsewhere because they're all nurses and teachers and MBAs and what have you. A project like this in a geography where feticide is really rife, Mm -hmm. it's a huge difference it's done to women. It's a huge difference it's done to livelihoods, to people who lost their own way of life. So so it's not the product so much as the purpose that has been solved in this. If we look at T2K now, C2K to me, uh, C2K's commitment to Kashmir, uh, C2K to me has like thrown the ball. I mean, it's a game changer in an initiative because till date, till I, till I took on the task at C2K, all the projects that I dealt with had a pool of beneficiaries who we worked with. Uh, we, you know, we worked within their skills. We gave them design training, business training, set up their enterprise or ramped up their enterprise. So if there were 50 people that we were addressing. They formed the enterprise. But in C2K, the scale is something else with this, with the same amount of funding that you, you know, they got for setting up a 50 people enterprise. We actually ended up training, um, and helping set up 27 different enterprises. We worked across 11 crafts. So it wasn't like we had this bunch of people who we worked with and we, you know, linked markets and da 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 da. Uh, we had these 27 people who um, set, who generated employment for 10 to 100 people each. So the reach is much more. But the greater beauty of the C2K project is that C2K brought hope and purpose to a land and a community that was completely uh, sunk in uncertainty and conflict for three decades. 
uh, most of the people who we work with over there are, um, you know, in their 20s and mid 30s. They were born into this conflict. This is not a fight of their own. They were born into something that they don't want to be a part of. How do we address that? They've all had an education. They all want to get ahead. They are the millennium lot. They have their gadgets. They are, you know, they are linked to the net. Uh, and they want to get ahead. And C2K has actually addressed that need. Okay. And uh, I think, like, right. even with the breaks that August 5th provided, <laughs> you know, put on us, mm-hmm. we still have managed to sort of move ahead. Mm-hmm. And it was just the perfect synergy of designers, of the core team, of the funder. Srishti stepped in and provided uh, business management training to some of the artisans. It's been a lovely, lovely collaboration. Leila, you've been working uh, with the craft sector for what, 38 years now, according to your website, nearly four decades. 38 years of Daskar, but another okay. five before that. Okay, so well over four decades. How important is government policy when it comes to this sector? Is it make or break? It is very important if you're looking at the macro picture, because the numbers are so huge. And though I agree with Neelam that, you know, there are solutions, there are collaborations, there are sort of shared platforms. My own experience is also that each community is very different. When you enter it, it has a different set of prob- uh, you know, needs. It has different sets of skill sets. It needs different sort of steps. And uh, I think there needs to be a pool of available investment, both of people and of money, who are going to go and work in these sectors. And I don't think it can be left absolutely to chance, whether it is a designer or whether it's an NGO, Mm -hmm. because we do tend to, unless there's an absolute need and someone comes to Daskar and says, will you work in Kashmir or will you work in Ranthambur, designers or entrepreneurs do tend to choose the softer options of, say, textile crafts and things. And there are many, many crafts in many communities who have a huge potential and a huge need as well, who just aren't addressed. Mm-hmm. So there have to be some macro schemes, there have to be some pools, but unfortunately the government funding has remained absolutely the same in the last 40 years, and they're so sort of strung with red tape, mm-hmm. they're so complicated, they don't reach out to people, and it's very difficult to access them. So. Whenever we ask the government for funding for anything, uh, we are usually told that not even 25% of the funds available for craft are utilized. Mm -hmm. But it's not utilized because no one wants that money, but because it's so complex to get hold of it. Christine, when international buyers source from India, are they looking at India as a production base, a factory, or are they looking for Indian design as well? Um, so it's, it's really a bit of both. I would say um, it's not one or the other. There's there's a lot of people come to India because we we can produce quite a lot. Believe it or not, I mean our our handicraft exports that go out, which covers some textiles, and it's about three point three point eight billion dollars, uh, and that doesn't include carpets. Carpets another one one point five billion dollars. So um, you know we we can produce, but I think intrinsically people do come to India with some uh, some awareness uh, of the of the hand craft uh, writing um, but it does depend on the brand um, people I would say very few people nowadays buying very ethnic looking products I think it, it is important 
that there is an element of uh, modern look or clean design, the right colors to fit into, uh, to fit into that country's uh, home. I mean, people love the block printing and the wood carving, as I said, but they don't want the traditional necessarily. But, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with contemporizing design. And, um, you know, there, there are a couple of examples uh, in, the, in the U.S. market. There's a, uh, a man called John Robshaw uh, who uh, works extensively in, in, in India and has done an, And he's not just block printing anymore in order to do mass production. He has taken his designs onto screen, but um, he still tell. I think um, it was, um, I think Neela mentioned telling the story is, is really important. And I think he tells the story. And then there's another small brand called Roller Rabbit, uh, based out of um, U.S. East Coast, and uh, and she does the same thing. So whether whether we whether the design is Indian or whether the design in, in, comes from abroad, it's really it's it's quite a it's quite an interesting blend. And I find there's a lot of good collaboration there. Um, you know, the, some of the clients, uh, the brands have in-house designers. Sometimes they just put concepts together and they expect the Indian exporters to interpret it and that's really there's a lot of design as we know in India so um, you know it's a question of marrying the two and a lot depends on the relationship between the, the buyer or the designer who's buying from India the factory or the exporter or craft producer and then uh, in sort of the, the buying agent role is quite uh, quite in the middle there to try and make sure that it all works and we get the best out of it. Um, we've seen quite a lot of uh, Indian designers, um, you know, Ayush, who we were talking about earlier, uh, Mukul Goyal, selling their own products internationally. I mean, there's a lot of that happening. Um, but we also have quite a lot of um, Western designers. Uh, Michael Aram is one who, who, who came to India as a, as a graduate from design school and set up his metal studio in India. I mean, he, he didn't really have an Indian connection, but he, he loved the, the handcraft. He, he, he just based himself here and and he's now quite a, a big international brand. Now, is he Indian? Is he American? You know, he's really quite a, quite a bit of both. It's, it's hard to say. So, you know, there's plenty of people who come to India and just say, okay, well, we can buy, you know, X million out of India. But uh, by and large, you don't come to India for mass produce. You come to India for uh, something a bit more interesting. And I didn't you wanted to weigh in on that as yeah, yeah, no, no, I just wanted to share because it's linked. I'm not trying to hog the line. Like Go ahead. <laughs> so, in... Uh, our most successful co-op in banana bark basketry mm-hmm. has happened only because of IKEA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The role that brands, global brands, and let's face it, it's only organized retail and global brands that are going to actually push a change in the system. Individual consumers have much less power compared to what larger brands and organized retail have. Right. So IKEA, I, I tried very hard to build a self-sustaining co-op on B2C orders that a brand Mother Earth I created gave. I couldn't because the order sizes were too small. Too small. Yeah. So finally, only, I mean, our relationship with IKEA is seven years long and IKEA is a unique company. Right. And it's, an, it's, 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 it's started by IKEA Commercial. It's not IKEA CSR. It's because IKEA's SDG goals. IKEA sustainable development goals are circular economy mm-hmm. and women's empowerment. And the head of sustainability at IKEA corporate has said, what better way to meet those two than increase our natural fiber buy? Mm-hmm. Let's buy less plastic. Let's buy more natural fibers because they are circular mm-hmm. in, in the circular economy. Not circular. Yeah, we like we like IKEA, we like IKEA. They put their they put their money where their mouth is. Actually, and they're they're among the few. Get them made by women co-ops because that's inclusive. Yeah. All right. It's time for our uh, third poll. I'm glad you brought up IKEA. 
in your view, what is the best way to connect craftspeople to urban consumers and thereby increase their livelihoods? So do we need more IKEAs, giant IKEA type retailers? Do we need thousands of boutique stores? I like buying from small boutique stores myself. I don't like giant retailers. Online marketplaces, can craft be bought online or is it a touch and feel product that online really won't work? Or do you think all of the above is what we need? All right, so the overwhelming answer, 56% says we need all of the above. It's not one or the other. Uh, I see the smallest ratio says we need giant IKEA type retailers. Uh, thousands of boutique stores gets a second vote and online marketplaces third. Right, interesting poll results. Uh, Tulika, I'm just going to ask you to react to the poll results. Why do you think we, people are saying we don't need IKEA type of retailers? Is that because large stores tend to be soulless and small boutiques tend to be quirky and fun? Uh, well, I think it's because it's the mindset. Mm -hmm. uh, and not really, uh, IKEA is one of the amazing stores uh, around the world. And also, uh, you know, what I'd like to say is uh, in tune with what everybody was talking about, more organized. So IKEA is more organized and we need more organization in this sector in India. And that is why I strongly feel, uh, you know, as Lailaji was saying, there's money, but people, but it's very difficult for people to get access to that money. Mm -hmm. So uh, my recommendation, if the government is willing to hear, is that we need a complete ministry for tech, for crafts. It shouldn't be a part of textile ministry. It's a part of MSME. It's a part of textile ministry has DC handicrafts. So I think there has to be, like we were talking about agriculture and farm and no farm, as uh, uh, Neelamji was saying. But I feel it shouldn't be called no farm. It should be called a craft sector completely, which has a ministry, which looks after the needs of the people. It has to be more organized. When we look at census, the census is not complete. It needs a better census. It has to be more organized for us to be able to do better justice to it. And if I go back 300 years, what we see is that, uh, you know, Madras checks was a brand in itself. Mm -hmm. Then there were calicos and there were shins and so on and so forth. Everything was Indian handcrafted. Uh, we were delivering to the consumers from the West and to the East. We were also giving to Thailand and, you know, there were Sodagiri textiles and there was so much Indian craft. I think the time has come that we can develop it Thanks to stalwarts who've brought it up again. Lelaji is sitting here. Uh, Neelamji is here. And uh, Devika, Christine, all of them are here. It started with Popul Jaikar and people like that who realized that we need it. And I think now time has come that we have to make it much more organized and profit-seeking. It shouldn't be, Khadi ne kuch kiya, subsidy diya, to bik raha hai. Wo subsidy nahi chahiye. You know, it has to be has that. To stand on its own. Yes, it has to stand on its own. That right. here it is. And this is the best. And it has to be for a market. It's not that you produce random products for anybody to buy. It mm -hmm. has to be that, you know, this is catered to the East, to the West, to India, to North of India, to South of India, to uh, because tastes are different across the country and across the world. So I think that's very, very important. It has to be targeted. It has to be organized. Census has to be done in a proper manner. And a ministry which allocates funds properly to various sectors. And we talk about artisans, we talk about craftspeople, but they are not the only ones suffering. Mm -hmm. There are small businessmen who are designers. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the artisans have become designers and then they have employed people coming from Bihar. Mm -hmm. You know, currently uh, from ISED, we are supporting a, a lot of artisans. And they say, ma'am, we have money to support ourselves. But are, uh, you know, these people who have migrated and who are now working as block printers in our company, they need support. Can you give them food? Can you give them? Mm -hmm. So the whole um, the thing has changed. You know, it has evolved over so many years. So I think all of that has to be a current, the current situation has to be studied. That has to be kept in mind and everybody should benefit out of it because uh, that will only happen when we organize it like IKEA does. Like some 
so that organization has to come in uh, you know for, and from the side of government it's very important okay, it's time I for our last few questions i'm going to start with uh, leila again leila is the solution to the craft problem of creating a ministry like tulika says what would you like the government to do well uh, i think there's a lot of debate on that and some people say that a separate ministry for the craft sector will make the craft sector even more marginalized case mm-hmm. and uh, while others feel that no it would give it more visibility i think the jury is out on that one but i do think that there needs to be a complete shift in the government perception of the sector where they're not looking at it as picturesque but rather primitive activity which has to be propped up with subsidies they need to look at it as a sector of huge huge potential in the international as well as the national market and they need to look at it long term instead of these short sops that they give in terms of these little schemes and things and i mean even the design and product development which i think all of us agree is a crucial area if india indian crafts is going to stop looking backwards and look forwards it has to be that the designers who are sent out on to work with craft people need to be briefed they need to there needs to be a potential buyer at one end and there needs to be a craft community the other who are also expressing their wishes their potential their skills at the moment it just doesn't usually some poor kid is sent off there doesn't know the a to z of the craft techniques and technology they don't know for which markets they're selling they don't know their price points they don't know even sometimes their sizes and the craft people think of designers as some sort of magic wand who's going to come and change their lives for them so i think there has to be a lot more communication there has to be a lot more planning and i think in all this the the government has to be the person who is enabling and not actually running i mean my first thing would be to shut down those government emporium and those state handicrafts corporations mm-hmm. because i think they actually make people think that craft is incredibly boring and depressing and too expensive and irrelevant and i think instead of that if we could actually have people writing in proposals which make sense which have business plans and the government either funds these or doesn't mm-hmm. it's not actually necessary to have the government in it at phase 1 mm-hmm. i mean daskar for instance decided some years ago uh, about 20 years ago that we wouldn't take government money and we mm-hmm. actually are completely unfunded now mm-hmm. we support ourselves on the revenue we get mm-hmm. it is possible but if you're looking at the craft sector in a long term perspective which i think we have to then i think you do need a government which is open which is flexible and which is responsive all right it's time for our fourth and final audience poll what is your opinion of government policies and actions in the craft sector you can take a period of time that you've been alive you've been uh, an adult and you observe the sector you have four options not bad but they could be doing a lot more option 2 very good option 3 good intentions but bad implementation and option 4 has been a total failure as far as you're concerned Okay, not bad. We have a fairly optimistic uh, group of people in the audience. Nobody has voted very good. That gets zero percent votes. But good intentions, bad implementation, and not bad. Together, about sixty-seven percent of people think that either they're not bad or they have good intentions. And thirty-three percent, that's one third, think it has been a total failure. Kristi, next question for you. What do you think it will really take for the Indian craft sector to grow 
at a rate that is that to create sustainable wealth for the actual producers, the people at the bottom end of the chain who are actually doing all the hard work. Uh, it's going to take a, a, a few things. Um, I think quite a lot has actually already been said, interestingly, um, although in different contexts. Design does play a huge part. I think whether it's from India, whether it's from abroad, um, there needs to be, you know, good collaboration. I think design schools, you know, and I, I can see that um, Tulik has already very clued up as to what's going on. And I think that design schools play a, play a tremendous role uh, in understanding, you know, in teaching how the craft is working. I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's too difficult. It's not my world to say how you would marry it up more than you're already doing. But I think more marrying up, more exposure uh, on both ways for the craftsmen to designers and designers to craftspeople because, you know, that's an obvious one. If, if that is a good um, collaboration, then uh, the sky's the limit. And then I think, um, as uh, Neelam, I think, mentioned, is some, you know, elements of technology, whether it's, um, whether it's uh, the uh, e-com, e I mean, not e-commerce, but whether it's working in the virtual space. Um, why should crafts not be allowed to use some form of technique that makes things a bit quicker. I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a purist, so Lila may, may, may be slapping me later, but in order for the craft to <laughs> expand, it, it needs to be able to, they need to be able to produce more that output. So I think a, a small amount of mechanization, and I realize in India we have very complicated yeah, schemes. I was talking to somebody uh, who's on the faculty at uh, NIFT, and um, he was telling me, he said, but if they do that, then they don't qualify for handicraft. They go in some other sector. And I'm like, does it really matter? You know, they just, if they could just be allowed to do their job. So I think, I think all that mechanization, that investment um, is, is essential. Um, now, how do craftspeople get money? I, I'm, I'm not sufficiently knowledgeable about what the schemes are, but why can't there be, you know, these, these microfinancing that they can, and, and then teach them to be entrepreneurs. I mean, they, they, you've got all the young generation of people from the classroom. They, the, your next generation can be doing all of this, doing stories on Instagram, telling the story of craft. So I think, I think there's huge potential, and it has all to do with modernizing, thinking modern, not just saying craft is stuck. I mean, I, I, I loved you know, I love the idea of, of, of blitzing Baba Karak Singh Road and, and you know, Baba Karak Singh Marg in Delhi and turning those emporiums into vibrant places. I mean, you do have Kamala there, which I think is a very good example of what craft can look like, which is the Delhi Craft Council store, which I send everybody to shop there. And I'm like, skip the rest because it's all dusty and tired and boring. And that's not what craft's about. It's not what the export craft is about. The, the, the craft that is being exported is very vibrant and amazing. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, um, work being done by the middleman. And I think the craftspeople themselves could do, could, could do a huge amount. And it is, you know, a, a companies like IKEA, um, I think in the U.S., there's a company called West Elm, which is uh, working a lot down with the grassroots and interested. So encouraging people like that to come in and work, uh, work in India will definitely help too expand uh, and grow and and you know te teaching teaching business skills you know business accounting basic training and I don't know where we are on skill training there seems to be a lot of talk about it but when I actually talk to craftspeople if I'm in a rug weaving area or in a wood carving or wherever and I say are your children going to do this job and, and they usually say no and that's very mm -hmm. concerning because who's going to do that job when they when their children don't do it so how can we how can we energize uh, that is maybe by maybe by giving these you know you know not so complicated uh, certificates of training diplomas you know in the old days in 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 Britain where where I, I'm from originally 
you could go to college, technical college, and just do a one-year diploma and learn to be a plumber or an electrician. Um, why can't we have crafts training like that? And you, you need a certificate in India. The certificate's really important, but it gives recognition and it gives skill training, and we will have more people who will be able to do it. So I, I think I think that's I think that's quite important. And just you know, a lot more um, a lot more support um, in, in a business way. Support. I don't. I, do, I like like Lila and and, and Nilam, I don't believe the government should be giving handouts. I think I think we should teach people to to fish and feed themselves because if they do that, then they'll be bigger, better, stronger. And I, I think there's huge potential. And there's, there's there's so many people. I mean, you know, if you just you just take the map of India and stick a pin in it, you're going to find you're going to find a craft skill or a craft skill. We need to we need to encourage. We need to grow. We need to grow because when they grow, they'll become uh, stronger and more successful. Neelam, you wanted to weigh in quickly. We're, we're running a little over time. So I'm going to go to the audience questions yeah, after your comments. I mean, you should see your chat. It's recorded. Please print out the chat and circulate it, right? I will. We will circulate it. <laughs> I would also like to say something quickly. Yeah, yeah. Yes, okay. Lena, so, 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 Next time, please poll how many men and how many women in the audience. I'm serious. Okay. My belief when you've spoken about this assembly line and mass production, whatever, so Jacob is completely, my husband is completely, you, we need more left brain, right brain, all kinds of people in the sector. Mm -hmm. Jacob went to Toyota to understand, he went to Japan on a three week free training to understand lean production. Because mm -hmm. So we use the principles of lean production on the inner co-ops to make it more efficient, like she said. And mm -hmm. do you know what lean production is based on? He met the 80-year-old teacher, the guys who founded Lean Production, mm -hmm. who founded Success, who founded the Toyota way of manufacturing, mm -hmm. all artisans. Jacob okay. came back and said, Neelam, from a Toyota assembly line, there's a blue Innova, then there's a yellow something else, and there's a green something else. The Toyota assembly line doesn't spit out a thousand blue Innovas. Mm -hmm. No. It's, it's all customized. That is the whole, so I really think design education has never taught enough about production, manufacturing, you know, you know, so there is, it took me 20 years to find out what a production engineer is. Mm -hmm. yeah? And there's this Indian Institute of whatever, production engineering in Bombay. And then I got the interns and I said, take every craft and break up its processes. So there's a lot to this sector. And, and the last thing I'll say is the sector has to mingle with other sectors. Right. Leila, quick comment for me before I go into audience questions. Yeah. Well, I first of all, I absolutely agree that we have to improve the technology of craft, not only to make it quicker. I don't think it, perhaps we need such quick craft, but to make it more acceptable to the people, more health, uh, less hazardous to their health, more easy for them to do, and more appealing to them as a profession because. Let's not forget that we're losing 15% of our craftspeople every decade. And I think that the drain is going to be even faster now. So to just increase uh, customer awareness of craft or make them want to create markets is not enough unless you have craftspeople who want to join the sector. They're all extremely savvy now. They're much more proficient at uh, WhatsApping and Zoom and all this than most of us are. And they use it a lot. I mean, I've been doing so much design development these last few days on WhatsApp. Uh, but I think we need to empower them to use all that. And that craft should be directed now by craftspeople and their potential and their requirements. 
rather than either by government or by the NGO sector or even by designers. Kulika, a quick comment before we go yeah. into So, uh, I just wanted to add that uh, that is why craft education is very, very important. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and because uh, as uh, Christine also mentioned just now that a lot of youngsters don't want to do it and we've been facing this. So I think it's not important for the child of craftsmen to take up the same thing if he or she doesn't want to, like a doctor or an engineer's son doesn't want to become a doctor or engineer, it's up to them. But we need craft schools to enable other people to become if they want to get into the line of crafts. And we have good schools in the country, but we need many more. So uh, like my emphasis on Ministry of Crafts is because then we also need to have at least one uh, institute, which is a craft institute in every state of the country. Uh, and like at IICD, we invite crafts people to teach. So they are teachers. You know, they teach. And uh, because what they teach, we cannot teach. None of us can teach. So I think that is very important that we get them in as faculty. Uh, we include their learning. And we build a strong education, uh, you know, like how computer science or something else has come up. Like that craft education really needs uh, to be a part in, in this country. And only then we'll be able to do justice, I feel. On that note, I'm going to open it up to audience questions. My first question I'm going to ask you, I asked Basrai asks, and I'm going to ask uh, Devika to answer this question. This is what differentiates an equitable collaboration between designer and craftsperson? And when does it become glorified slave labor? Tough question. So Devika, if you'd like to take a crack at that. What is a true equitable collaboration? <laughs> the answer is that um, it is uh, when you, when, at least if I say it from my point of view, when I work in a community or with a community, there is no me in the process. I am water. So okay. I go in, I don't have a plan. I, do, I mean, I have a business plan. I know what we need to achieve in terms of the livelihood in terms of the earning, in terms of which market to tap and what to do. But I have no idea of what okay. I sit there and I soak up what they create. And very often, like Lila knows, that the stuff that I cook up, say, in Rantumbo is uh, completely um, new craft because I work, uh, our task there is to actually generate employment to uh, communities that weren't into craft before. So I would be, I would spend a couple of weeks in a village uh, talking to women day after day. And uh, there is really no sale in terms of craft, craft that can be sold. But you know, they braid hair really well. So what can we do with braided, the skill of braiding? And then you sort of plug in the fact that your main center generates a whole lot of um, um, chindi, a lot of scrap. And so we braid the scrap. And we think we can make mats and, you know, flat products out of it. The women for the life of them cannot make a flat uh, mat out of the braided stuff. So we get these cups and we sort of think, should we make bowls? Should we make hats? Should we do this? Should we do that? And suddenly somebody says, oh, this looks like a turtle. And then we say, oh, great, let's make turtles. And then from that turtle, now the Chindi Animal Brigade is, I think, 30 animals strong. And it's our fastest selling product. And it was no craft. So I was, you know, I don't know at what point there was me and what point there, it's never been me and it's been together. All right. It's the same thing with the birds that we do now. It's the same thing. So really there's no slave in the, the picture. There's no slave in the picture. All right. Next question. Rajan from Bangalore asks, and I'm going to pose this question to Neelam Chibber because of your industry experience. 
this question is simple. Neelam, he says, why hasn't a craft focus e-commerce platform taken off in India? Why don't we have a big giant e-commerce craft player? Uh, because we don't have supply chains to back it. Okay. It's all about supply chain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's all about supply chain. When the person or the brand or the company based in the US says, move this ikat from mm, hand ikat to screen print ikat. Mm-hmm. What is that person saying? That the supply chain for hand ikat is not in place. The number of artisans for hand ikat are in place, but the organized supply chain is not in place. And okay. that is actually what Leila is referring to when she says that the government support is needed. Because are these supply chains going to be built by every exporter? Not possible. Okay. Again, I want to call out, government is not going to give you the money to build those supply chains. Okay. It's not going to come from there. We've got to come up with our own ways of how are we going to build supply chains for scale. Okay. Next question goes to Leila Tayabji. Gary from our audience asks, and I think that's something that Christine said you might slap her for saying. Uh, is there a danger of serious dilution of the craft form itself when these economies are scaled by driven by the are driven by the export market? When we want more of something and then we are willing to mechanize or dilute the actual craft? At what point does it cease to be the craft itself? I think the thing is not so much the numbers, because India has the potential to produce craft in numbers. Though, again, because different crafts are different, uh, you know, there's some where there's a huge potential for multiplication and there are other crafts which do not have the numbers. But I think they all could deliver. The question is time and the money to buy the raw material to produce it. Usually the exporter or particularly the e-marketer is expecting a finished product. He might pay for it quite soon, but he's not going to invest in the process or Mm -hmm. the production. And uh, sometimes if you want to upscale the numbers, you have to improve the machinery, the equipment, Mm -hmm. buying raw material. It's really extraordinary how many craftspeople still buy raw material from the mainstream market Mm -hmm. because they don't have the capacity to buy in bulk or order in numbers in advance. So all those things have to be streamlined and put into place. And there is where I think this whole investment is required to create these stable production units from craftspeople who still work as a kind of family activity, sometimes Mm -hmm. even part-time along with agriculture. Christine, next question for you. Tanya asks, can you give us an example of a country that has managed their intangible cultural heritage of craft sector very well from a government policy level, can you think of a country that's done this well? There's so few countries with um, crafts, you know, with craft centers. Um, probably, you know, Japan has really protect. I mean, they have this very precious um, craft there. I, I, it's the only country that I, I'm, I'm reasonably familiar with. I, I don't know Vietnam or Cambodia. Um, I would think countries east of here. Um, um, Morocco, actually, strangely, um, Morocco still does seem, I have no idea what the government involvement is, but if you go as a tourist to Morocco, uh, you do see, you know, they have the ceramics, they have the rugs, they have, um, they have the metalworking. And I did visit one of their metalworking places. So maybe, maybe Morocco is managing it, but it's very small scale. And they are, I mean, when, when somebody wants to buy a big scale, a bigger scale, they'll come to India if they want a Moroccan looking lantern, they'll buy it in India because I don't think the uh, craftsman in Marrakesh can, can provide it. So um, may, maybe Japan, but again, they, you want to buy a, a, a lacquer. Very, very well. 
Where? I was very impressed when I went to Indonesia two years ago to see Possibly. how... Possibly. Yeah, that's, that's another country. That's organized. Yeah. 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 And I, I, have no, I have no visibility on how the government, uh, what government involvement is. Maybe in Indonesia, perhaps you're right, is with, with between their, their batik and their wood. Um, they do have a lot of uh, craft. Okay. Next question for Tulika Gupta. Uh, Adarsh asks, what are the rules for marrying crafts and technology so that it's meaningful to the craft? Uh, there are no rules as such, but uh, I think we will have to look at them uh, one by one. And the most important thing is that we do not dilute the craft. Mm -hmm. uh, we need tools, we need technology, but we do not have to dilute the craft. The spirit should be there. Uh, the motifs are also changing and things will change. Uh, also, I keep reading about newer technologies that are coming in and I think, uh, you know how you can do surgery, uh, the doctors can do surgery with use of technology sitting miles away. And I think something like this can also, uh, it, it's called haptics. And uh, so if there is this one person who's making a beautiful, say, pottery or he's doing uh, a kind of uh, uh, some interesting work, uh, embroidery or something, which can, it's not machine, it's not machine made, it's handmade, but the same person can create it faster, uh, uh, you know, and if more demand of similar type comes, because what I see in the West is they want very standardized products. They don't really um, uh, appreciate a lot of differences in each product. So this way technology can help us. And of course, all the e-commerce platforms, all um, uh, there is something new that I was studying, but I haven't completed it. But that can really help for, uh, with payments. Because there's a lot of issue about karigars uh, and artisans not getting payments. And if we use that technology, uh, the buyer is bound to, uh, so, uh, to pay the, uh, the supplier. And the karigar puts up his work and there is a kind of a bill which will go and then uh, you know, he will have to pay. He cannot not pay. Uh, it is, so this way we can use technology, not to mass produce, not at all, but to create similar products by the same person faster and also to, uh, to, to market it, to sell it. Um, all right. Next question for Neelam from multiple people actually. So I can't name any one person asking this question. I'm getting a lot of questions that say, uh, I'm a designer, I'm a student, I would like to volunteer, I'd like to spend some time in the craft sector. So for both Neelam and for Devika. Is there a platform that can channelize this sort of energy of designers who are maybe doing commercial work but would like to do a little bit of work in the craft and do a little volunteer time? ADI. All right. So join ADI, step number one. ADI should be the platform. There's a lot of requests for these things to become monthly. I do something craft-focused monthly. I said ADI will do it. Okay. There's yes, a lot of requests for online course around I think just about... And I'm asking for weekly online course. It's all in your chat. I'm reading. I'm just, I'm, I'm yeah. not in the chat mm -hmm. right now. So there's a ton of stuff there. I've even checked how much are they willing to pay per week. Mm -hmm. One lady has said she'll pay 1,000 rupees per week per session okay. for uh, 1.5 hours. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of things on it. Yes. <laughs> you know, we are, we are thinking on these lines of creating these online courses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so right now, I believe ADI should just start. Start with a volunteer thing. Start with something. And uh, it's just simple. I think everything happens only when it's forced to happen. You have got at least 50, 100 people like me, Devika, Leila, Tulika, Christina, who will want to give back. Who will get the, just start. 
It's the only way to do this. Devika, same question to you. If a dozen volunteers came to you, would you be able to deploy them? Of course, I do it all the time. Okay, all right. So what I is know the, that Dastakar would, would yes, show up the right. We would love them, but they have to commit to spending some time because, you know, it's not something, our sector is not something that you can step into for a week or so. It mm -hmm. has to be a little more intense mm -hmm. than that. Okay. So, so exactly. So when, when somebody approaches me and says they want to spend time um, working in the craft sector, I have a set of rules. Mm -hmm. And okay. the first thing is commitment. Yeah. It's not something that you can plug in and plug out. But even then, if the student says, I have two weeks to do, then I give a task for those students, like, you know, create mood boards, document this technique, get the social survey done. I give tasks like that. It does not always have to be design. And I think uh, even in all the questions, in, in, in the entire discussion, I want to bring this back into focus, is that for me, um, when you look at craft and when you look at design and markets and whatever, it is people before product, always. And that we cannot forget. And that's philosophically the most important point. Yeah, most important. People first, process next, product last. Okay. People first, process next, product last. Okay. We are well over time. I'm going to stop it at this point. Uh, I'm going to uh, introduce Dhwani Shah. Dhwani is, a, is an illustrator and graphic designer. And she's currently working with Tara Books in Chennai. She's joining us from there. Now, she's been quietly taking sketch notes from uh, over this entire webinar. All right, Narpana, over to you for a small closing note before we end the webinar. Fabulous, fabulous. What a power-packed uh, session this was. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you, panelists. Thank you, Suresh, Team ADI, and all you lovely people, the 500 and the 200 on Facebook who joined us today. Um, it was wonderful having all of you here. Two quick uh, reminders. One, please uh, go to edi.org.in and fill up the National Design uh, Survey. Yeah. And the second thing is, um, we at ADI have noted all your feedback and suggestions from today. And uh, these talks are just a few things that we at ADI have initiated. There's lots more happening. So uh, please, uh, again, go back to adi.org.in, register, be a member, and stay connected with us for all other sessions too. Stay safe, be well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Suresh. Thank all right, final thank you note. On behalf of ADI, I'd like to thank uh, all of you panelists, Leila, Sulika, Neelam, Christine, Devika. Thank you, Ansu. Thank you, Darpana. And thank you, Seema. Thank you, Dwani, for the sketches. I'd also like to thank Anantaya Jaipur once again for making this webinar possible. Thank you, Anantaya. We'll see you again soon. Thank you, everybody.